Good evening, Hope Church. There you go. You know the drill. Open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going line by line through the epistle of Paul that he wrote from prison. I just spent a good afternoon down with the... uh, uh, the uh, the crew down on the Gold Coast, which if you're not aware, probably most of you are, but there's a couple, couple if you're not aware, we do have a, a church plant that was starting on the Gold Coast um, uh, <clears throat> that's been going for about six months and uh, going to uh, further, getting closer and closer towards making that independent and it's just growing and just want to thank you for your prayers and ask for continuing prayers. If you have friends down that way, do invite them along and next week, uh, if you want to rock up, there is a baptism at the, somebody else has got the details, but near... Uh, it'll come to me. It's a dog. Labrador, near Labrador Bay. That was confusing for a second, wasn't it? No, there's a Labrador Beach is just in there and somewhere near there. We're going to dunk one of the guys who's come along and is a fairly new convert and uh, is required to be baptized. That's going to be Gold Coast's uh, first baptism service. It'd be great if you could go along. Yeah, and, uh, of course, thank you for your prayers and praise God. But uh, that's going to be 1 p.m. next Sunday down on the coast. So if you've got a spare afternoon, come and join in with the uh, uh, the, the sacrament there on, on the Gold Coast. And we'll be in the open air, so I'll give a bit of a bit of an open air gospel call as well. <clears throat> All right, open up to Ephesians chapter 2 if you're not there yet. We're, we're going to be in verse 19 and then going into the beginning of chapter 3 to verse 6. So, so our practice here, if you're new, if you're visiting, is we take books of the Bible and study them line by line with the conviction that this is God's Word and therefore what is good for the church, our, our staple diet needs to be a continual pattern and process of devouring and understanding the Word of God in the New Testament, uh, especially, but the whole of Scripture uh, in the Bible. And, and where we are today, well, I said this last week, and we'll remind ourselves now, in verse 19, uh, it opens like this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And this is the, the scenario or the controversy or the, the situation that, that Paul is addressing is what is the relationship between God's chosen people, the Jews in the Old Covenant, and the Gentiles, which is a fancy word for anybody that's not a Jew? What's the relationship this side of the cross, this side of the triumphant resurrection from the grave? How do we relate to each other? Are there still Jewish-specific rules? Do we still have to uh, 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 go through some sort of uh, ceremony in order to have our full access to God? And this passage and last week's uh, passage is all answering the question and simply saying, absolutely not. Now, in the gospel, because of Jesus' death and his blood which which washes us clean of our sins and his resurrection in which he's created the the one new people of God called the church. Now there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We're all in this together. And and so to to sort of get a picture of just how how startling this was for the first century, I want you to imagine that that you, some of us are imagining this, some of us may just be remembering, but imagine you're 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 a member of a very exclusive club. I don't care if it's a staff club or a Qantas club where you get the the fancy seats on the plane and in the members lounge or or maybe a sports club and and you you, you have a club that you can go to or or whatever, a a cafe frequent flyers because you eat a lot there. Whatever it is, imagine you've got this exclusive membership to this impressive club and and often you go there and and let's pretend it's in the the dark side of town and and to get there, you know, you sort of got to walk through the the slums a little bit and there's the poor people and the beggars who'll, who'll grab you for a 
attention or ask for your money on your way to your exclusive club and here you are in your, in your wonderful clothings or your favorite jersey, whatever it is, and, and you, you try and avoid them. But you know, you get to the door and all you have to do is flash the member's card, flash the ID card, and you're through the door, the door is shut, and all those, those, those undesirables are left behind you. Okay, and, and then without your knowledge, this club, this favorite club of yours that you get so much proud, pride from comes under new management. And then you're rocking up one day again and you're going to come and frequent it and, and you're going through the, through the city and here's the pores and the beggars and they're asking you for stuff and you're bustling through because you just want to get to the door. Once you get to the door, you flash your exclusive card, you're in, they all stay out. And you get there and the, the guy on the door simply says, do you want to come in? And do you trust the establishment to give you refreshment? And you go, that's, that's not the entry requirement. What, what happened to my club? What happened to my, my, member, my members only area? And they say, oh, it's new management. This is now a, a, an establishment for refuge for any in the city. We give refreshment to any and all. And, and so here you are on the door. No, the question you're supposed to ask me is, do you have your card? And, and can I see your ID? That's what you're supposed to ask me again. And they go, no, no, no. Here's the only requirements. Do you require refreshment? And do you trust the establishment to give it to you? And you, well, well yes. Yeah, I, I guess, and so you're thrust in, but along with you, all of the undesirables, the poor, the beggars that you thought you got in ahead of and away from. And that's what it's like for the Jews at this point. We, we, we're going to see today in the passage that we need to give our, our Jewish brothers and sisters of antiquity in the first century a bit of leeway and slack. Paul understands that this was a difficult thing to swallow, that the Gentiles, as the, the Jews, were used to being in the exclusive club, the, the nation of God, the, the saved people of God. They, they were used to, because of their Jewishness, their Israeliteness, their, their circumcision, their cleanliness, they got first dibs. They were at the front of the line, exclusive access to God. And then his verse 18 saying, to Jews and to Gentiles, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the Gentiles are no longer aliens and outcasts and strangers, but instead you're all one. And that's the offense that the Jew has at this moment in, in redemptive history. In the, in the first century, they're hearing this gospel of Paul, and they're asking the question, is there no uh, 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 membership perks that I get for being a Jew and the answer has been a resounding no, not in Christ. In Christ, no longer the question is posed, are you a son of Abraham? Are you an Israelite? Have you been circumcised? Did you frequent the temple? None of those things. Now the question simply is, have you had faith? Have you trusted in the Savior of Jesus to wash you of your sins? That's the only question God will ask you on Judgment Day. Are you a sinner? Do you require salvation? And did you rest on Jesus for that salvation? If that's yes for you, then ethnicity, race, nationality just has nothing got to do with it. So look at uh, uh, verse 20 and onwards. That's what we'll be reading uh, uh, this afternoon as we uh, go, go for this, this whole new passage this week. Verse 20 of chapter 2. We are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... 
assuming that you have heard about my stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made to me, by, known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. May God bless this reading in our midst to his glory this evening. Well, well, at this point, verse 19 is kind of the, the summary of what has gone before and, and basically a summary of what is coming afterwards also. You are no longer strangers and aliens, you Gentiles, cut off and far away. You are instead fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This language of, of citizenship is kingdom language. In the, in that, now, if you, you know your Bible, and we're just going to do a little bit of what we call biblical theology tonight. That is not just theology that is biblical, but that is taking broad themes in Scripture and seeing how they develop. That's, that's a study that we're going to be committing to tonight. And in the biblical theological discipline of the study of kingdom, we understand that God establishes kingdoms, uh, or, or specifically his, his people's kingdom in the Old Testament, he established the people of Israel by joining into covenant with them. So, so God establishes covenants, that is, a series of promises and conditions and oaths and vows. He creates a covenant with a certain people and through that covenant consecrates for himself a people that are now his kingdom. And so we could speak of not just the Old Testament people, the Jews, but probably more accurately, the Old Covenant people. Or if we want to go a little bit more detailed, we could say the Old Covenant Kingdom people. The Old Covenant Kingdom was delineated by obedience to the law and ethnicity. But now, now Paul is making clear that if we're citizens of something else, we're fellow citizens, then he's speaking of another kingdom, a new covenant kingdom. And, and so we're going to ask a couple of questions. What makes up this new covenant kingdom? Well, the first thing you need in a covenant kingdom is, in fact, for God to make a covenant. And we'll ask the first question. What is the covenant that establishes the new covenant kingdom? Tremendous question. I am, I'm, I'm enthralled that you asked that. The covenant that establishes the grounds for a new covenant kingdom is, in fact, what the Bible calls the new covenant or what you might just want to shorthand as the gospel. The new covenant is, is a series of promises that God makes to us through Jesus, which is that you will have forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God, a, a complete forgetting of all the evil against your account, a, a reception into God's kingdom, a, an eternal life, the Holy Spirit, and all of those blessings on one condition, that you trust Jesus Christ by faith. That's the condition of the new covenant. So, so we're studying this new covenant kingdom that we have citizenship in. And the first question is, what's the covenant that establishes it? The new covenant. The second question you might ask is, okay, well, if it's a kingdom, you need a king. Okay, uh, easy one for the, for the visitors tonight and everybody. Uh, who is the king? One word, please. Who is the king of the new covenant kingdom? 
Good job. Yes, pat yourselves on the back. You can you know, get a bit more energetic tonight. Uh, uh, Jesus is the king who has been resurrected from the grave, ascended to, the, to, to heaven, and what Ephesians 1 had already told us, he is now seated at the right hand of God in the highest seat and highest place of all authority. So the new covenant is established by the gospel. Entrance into this kingdom is by faith. The king over this kingdom is Jesus. Now we ask, what about the people of the kingdom? Any, any kingdom has people within it. Who are the people of the kingdom in the new covenant? And the answer is very simple. It is anyone and everyone who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or the church. Anybody in the true church the, the, who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are, regardless of ethnicity or nationality or Jewishness, they are in the kingdom. They are born again and therefore in the kingdom of God. Okay, that's the covenant, the new covenant. That's the king, it's Jesus. That's the people, is everyone who trusts Jesus. But what about a place? Any kingdom has a delineation of, of an area. It has an area of domain. That's why we call it a kingdom, a, kingdom, a king's dominion. What is his domain? And in one sense, we could say, according to Ephesians 1.22, that the entire universe is in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham Kuyper rightly said, there is not a square inch in the entire universe over which Jesus Christ does not rightfully claim mine. He owns it all. He rules it all. He's on the throne above every throne, every atom, every season, every nation, every day of history is, is belonging to him as his kingdom. And yet, there's another sense we should talk in a narrower sense about the kingdom of God, and that is that, that the kingdom of God is, is manifested or realized. It comes into a palpable reality where the people of God worship God. And so that again, I mean, it could be at any point in the universe. It could be in a forest galaxy were we to travel there. But wherever a church is planted and wherever souls worship Jesus, come under his word, give glory to Jesus and understand the gospel, wherever there are born again people, there is the manifested kingdom of Jesus on every landscape and in every nation under heaven. So that's the covenant that's the king, that's the domain, and that's the people of the new covenant kingdom, in which now verse 19 says, we all, by faith, we all have access, we all have citizenship in that kingdom. But there's one more question, that if you're super biblical and you're a total nerd, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, this question is still dangling in the back of your mind. And, and if you're a first century Jew, you'd definitely be asking this question. You go, okay, every good kingdom, all right, and, and the kingdom of God, yes, it has a king and a covenant and a people and a place, but there's one thing, one very, very important thing you're forgetting if you're telling us about a new kingdom. And that element is the very heart of the kingdom, the, the heartbeat, the center, the, the beauty piece of the kingdom, and that is the temple imagine the Jewish person asking, what about the temple? If it's a kingdom of God, where's the temple that was, that was prophesied? Where's the temple? I mean, we had a temple in our last one. And of course, Paul's language tonight in Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 20, in verse 19 through 22, says very clearly that the church, the local gathering of God's people, even though we look like this and as fallen and weak and as frail as we are, this is the temple of God where he presences himself among his people. Yes, this new covenant kingdom has a temple. 
and it is the people of the church, which might, might, you could imagine that as, as Paul says this, which he frequently would be saying in his, in his ministry, in his preaching, you can imagine that a Jew might stand up in synagogue one day or as he's preaching in Ephesus. Remember his three-year ministry in Ephesus, open-air preaching. You can imagine that a, that a Jewish Ephesian stands up and goes, hang on, uh, rebuttal here, Your Honor. Apostle Paul, I want to challenge you. Our citizenship is literally from Jerusalem. You know, that, that's better than this spiritual temple thing you're talking about. Here's, let's imagine a bit of a dialogue, four or five arguments from the Jew against Paul. And he stands up and says, no, no, our citizenship is from Jerusalem. And the Jewish side of the crowd goes, ooh, yeah, nice, right? This is UFC 256. They're, they're getting into the fight here. <clears throat> and Paul says back, well, our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3, verse 20. We don't have, nor do we need, connection to any impressive earthly city to benefit our salvation. It's utterly irrelevant as far as our salvation goes. We Jews and Gentiles, whoever trusts in Jesus, have full benefits of citizenship in heaven. Ooh, goes this side. I'm not going to get you to do it, but let's imagine, okay? The Gentile crowd, ooh, ooh, they start cheering. Number two, they stand up and go, well, well, okay, but, but we belonged to Jerusalem, the great city of God. Jerusalem, we belonged to that. And Paul says in Galatians 4.26, the present Jerusalem is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she's our mother. Oh, come on, that's a, that's, that's, a good, that's a good left hook. We don't need, in other words, we don't need a connection to the physical Jerusalem because that was always just a shadow of the greater reality, the heavenly Jerusalem to which we're, that's, that, there's a song that we kind of sing here and there that says uh, we all belong to Jerusalem above. And this is the verse that's getting it from, Galatians 4.26. Or, or imagine the, the Jewish fella, he stands up and he goes, well, well, we are used to worshiping on Mount Zion. The mountain of God, the mountain of salvation. That's where we're used to worshiping. And then Paul stands up and he quotes Hebrews 12, 22, and he says, well, when we worship Christ, you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. As Paul's saying, yeah, I know you are used to worshiping on Mount Zion, but when you come to Jesus by faith under his word in the preaching of the gospel and the raising of our hands to King Jesus, we have come to the true Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what the local church gathering is. It's transportational. It takes you to heaven in a sense. Maybe he stands up again, this Jewish interlocutor, and says, well, we were commanded we were commanded to worship in Jerusalem. Is, is there no restrictions anymore? Right, that's a good jab. All the Jews are laughing. Yeah, if everywhere's holy, then nowhere's holy. Right? Uh, we had restrictions because it was important. It meant something to be a Jew. So where do you worship? Where's your worship now? And Paul might say what Jesus said in John chapter 4. Believe me, Jesus said, the hour is coming when neither on this Sumerian mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in dot, dot, dot. What city? What's the location? Where do you go to worship the Father? Oh, it's not a place. It's a state of heart. It's not, it's not a location. It's a, it's, a, it's a status of your being. And that is that he says, not a location. He says, the true worshipers will worship the Father in Spirit and truth. 
in the reality of our deepest being, according to the truth of God, not within the walls of a temple, not according to a dot on a map. That's where true worshipers, that's where true worship happens. It's as if Paul is saying this, you better get used to having a temple that is not physical, not visible, not tangible, and not touchable. First of all, he doesn't say it here, but he says it elsewhere. First of all, you better get used to having a non-physical temple because the first temple is being torn down by the Romans in eight years. It was written in AD 62 about by AD 70, the Romans will come in and destroy the place. What will happen then? What of their presence of God? And secondly, the reason they need to get used to having a non-physical temple is because that's the temple of the new covenant. <laughs> Is the church a spiritual temple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, to avoid confusion, let's ask the question, broad biblical question, what we're saying before about biblical theology, is what is a temple? What is the, what is the meaning of temple? Because sometimes the Bible's negative against the ideas of temples. I, gotta say, I don't live in a building. You didn't build that. It doesn't contain me. Why are you worshiping me there? And at other times, he commands the building. So, so let's understand what, what is meant by this language, this biblical idea of temple. And in the simplest terms that I can put it is this, it is God's localized presence where he meets with mankind. His localized presence, because he's everywhere, right? He's, he's illiterate, but his locally covenanted presence where he intentionally meets with man. Now, now the very first temple that ever, ever happens in biblical history and history entirely is in is not in the Exodus, it's not in David's time. In fact, the first temple that was ever established was built by God himself, a great garden city, a, a location on the earth before the fall. The first temple of God was in fact the Garden of Eden. The whole world was unfallen, the whole world was perfect, but he placed his man, his prophet, priest, king Adam, into the garden, surrounded it with, with, with beauty and with imagery on the top of a mountain where all of the water flowed out of, all temple imagery in the Old Testament, and God meets him there daily walking in the cool of the afternoon. The temple, first off, was a garden. But then after the, after the fall and after him being cast out of that temple and that temple being destroyed in Noah's flood, then it was not until the time of Moses that there was established another localized presence of God where man could meet with God, and that was the tabernacle that God commanded him and Aaron and the Levites to build the sanctuary or the temple, the tabernacle. That was made out of leather and cloth and ropes and wood, but then... There was the kingdom built, uh, sorry, the temple that was built by Solomon, the great, glorious, beautiful, golden temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. But, but then when the Babylonians came and sacked that and burnt it down to the ground and the Israelites were cast out into exile, even then, even in the old covenant time, God was sure to make clear to them that your sanctuary, your, your meeting with God is not tied to a place. He says in Ezekiel chapter 11, Though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have remained a sanctuary to them. The sanctuary is the temple language. Even though they're scattered, I myself am that sanctuary for them while in the countries where they have gone. Even in the Old Testament, God had shed light on the fact that it was possible to meet with God without the physical sanctuary, to, to have a temple without a physical temple. God himself is where man meets God. And then, 
And then to, to cap all that off, it's Jesus in his earthly ministry. In John 2, he's walking around and, and he, he talks about destroying the temple and building it back up in three days and they're confused. But it's John who writes and says, he wasn't talking about Herod's temple. He wasn't talking about the stone structure. He was talking about the temple of his body. In a way unparalleled before, now God was not simply in a structure among the people, but John chapter 1 says that God, the Son, the Logos, has tabernacled in flesh among us. That he himself is not just God inside the body of a man, but God taking on truly the actual nature of a man. It was, it was an amazing fact that Jesus, and everywhere he went, he carried the glory of God. He was the glory of God because he was the temple of God. He was God in flesh, where God met with man, his localized presence. And then after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, his ascension into heaven, you're asking, what's our temple now? Because the temple was Jesus' body, which is now in heaven. So obviously there's no temple on earth, which is an okay answer except for the fact that the New Testament then goes and says that something else is called the body of Jesus, isn't it? It's the church that is called the language, given the, 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 the ideology of being the body of Christ on earth. And so therefore, we have the reality that from beginning to end, this is what God was seeking to do. Not build a glorious physical temple, but build one made of living beings through the blood of Jesus Christ, his body on earth, his Church. So his, his church, not the buildings, not this old thing, not, not the cathedrals that we erect and build, but the local congregations of Christians who worship Jesus in spirit and truth under his word are now the New Testament temple of God in the kingdom of Jesus. Now, if that language is just a little bit too jarring, let's just look at a few other places. You can go there if you want, but my guess is that I'll be too quick for you. Try and prove me wrong. I don't care, but, but I'm just going to shoot through them real quick. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. Paul, speaking to somebody trying to divide the church and reach for power and influence in the church in a sinful way, he says, he warns them with this warning. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. That is not an individual you. He's speaking to the congregation of the Corinthians. This, this body of people together. You are the temple of God. You are holy. You are that temple. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 in encouraging them to, to cast away their idolatry and keep a pure worship in the church, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Do you see again that that's not, that's not singular? There's another place in 1 Corinthians when he says your body is the, holy, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a different analogy. This is the analogy that we are corporately the temple of God. It's reiterated again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Spiritual house, language for temple. Or in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, which we're reading tonight, you are the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, in this age, in this day, until the end of days, where does God dwell on earth? Not in a building, in his church. Where does he localize and emphasize and manifest his own presence? And Not, not a weird, tingly, spiritual, uh, 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 funny feeling in the gut or, or cloud coming down from the sky. None of, not that, but a real presence meaning where we meet and by faith we are sure. Jesus is here feeding our souls, growing us spiritually. Where does that happen? Not on the conference. Not on your awesome camp that you take with your mates. Not on your little fast retreat that you go on for six months by yourself. None of those things necessarily negative except for the fact that they take you away from the true temple, which is the church. This, this twice a day meeting, or as often as we meet, the local congregation of God in all of our different spots and places, wherever the word is preached, the sacraments are done, and the people of God are discipled and disciplined into holiness. That is the holy temple of God to put on display. Jesus Christ in the world. What if, what if a Jew felt at this point that they said, okay, Paul, I get it. Like, I see the glory now of the new covenant compared to the old covenant, but if I can, what about a beautiful building? Is there anything wrong with a beautiful? He did it once. It's obviously not a bad thing. Might we do it again? What if this is just for a time? What if the spiritual is just for a moment, but he'll get back. Like he'll, in the end, we'll get back to a physical global temple of some kind, a, a touchable, visible one, right? And my simple question that I assume Paul would ask is, why would he? I mean, if he has a temple that is built by the Spirit, why go back to one built by men? If he's got a temple built on the foundation of himself, why would he go and build one on the foundation that Solomon laid? If he, if he has a temple that is currently enabling universal worship, why would he go back to one that gives him singular locational worship? If he has a temple that is right now made out of spiritual living people who belong to him, why would he go back to one built by dead rock? It's simply a no-brainer. This New Testament, New Covenant Kingdom temple is the more glorious temple. Now, this can be really difficult. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, and through to verse 6, you sort of see, this is what I said before, you've got to give, give the Jews some slack that they, that they struggled with this in the New, in the New Testament times because, because as Paul says in verse 1 to 6 of chapter 3, this is entirely new with the apostles. If he went into a synagogue and preached this, which he did, and they happened to grab him and beat him up, which they did, at least in the back of the mind while he's getting whacked, right, and blood spraying out of his mouth. He's at least thinking, I get it. It's, uh, it's, it's not in the Old Testament scriptures. I don't blame you. Whack, whack. Here's what happens. Verse 1 through 6. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So there's one. Here's what he means. He goes, I'm in prison right now. I'm Paul. Nice to meet you. I'm in prison. Why? I'm a prisoner of Jesus. Why? On behalf of you. In other words, Paul's saying, do you know what got me in trouble? Do you remember what got me arrested? It was that I kept on preaching that the Gentiles are one with the Jews. It was that I dared to show up in Jerusalem with a Gentile Ephesian, one of your mates, Trophimus, right? This is what happened in Acts chapter 21. He's saying, why am I in prison? Well, I'm here on behalf of you. If I didn't preach this message about the, the Jew-Gentile temple and the people of God, the, the equality in the gospel, if I didn't preach that, I wouldn't have gotten arrested. I would have been fine, but I'm here, locked up on behalf of you. 
So he said, I, I get it. I'm a prisoner for this whole thing. I understand if you're taking some time to process it. Or number t- in, in, in verse 2, he says, Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. In other words, what he's saying is that, that he's an apostle for this very specific reason. The reason that, that he was given grace to be a steward of handing out God's grace was specifically for the ministry to the Gentiles. He's elsewhere called in the, in the New Testament the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the uncircumcised, the, the apostles to the nations, the light to the nations, quoting Isaiah 49. So, so here's Paul saying, this is a big deal. I get that it's new. I, guess that it's, I, guess that it's, I get that it's shocking. God delegated an entire 13th apostle to this ministry alone. This is why I'm an apostle. This is why I got the grace of apostleship. It was for you. And then thirdly, in verse 3 to 6, we see this, the, the real chief reason why we have to go easy on our first century brothers and sisters who were Jews when they struggled to understand this is because this truth simply wasn't in their Old Testament scriptures. They didn't call it Old Testament, did they? It just wasn't in the scriptures. The prophets never spoke about this. Let's read in verse 3 to 6. The mystery was made known to me by revelation. Do you understand what he's saying? Is that this had to be downloaded fresh from heaven to me as an apostle. I didn't read this in the Old Testament. I didn't exegete this from Isaiah. If you'll read really, this is new information. Right? It had to be given to me by revelation. As I have written briefly. Where did he write this briefly? In chapters 1 to 2. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, this mystery of Christ, the the kingdom of Christ, the the, the gospel of Christ, the people of Christ, faith in Christ, all of this, this mystery that is in Jesus Christ, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's here's what he's saying. This revelation is new, never before heard, and fresh given through the holy apostles and prophets of the Lord Jesus after the resurrection and the the giving of the Holy Spirit. I don't blame you for finding this new. Now, now maybe some of us sort of of put our hand up at this point and go, hang on, the gospel, the Christ, the good news of the Messiah is not entirely new with the new. It was... Doesn't Paul himself argue for the Messiah being Jesus from the Old Testament? Doesn't Jesus do that in Luke 24 when when he takes them through Moses and the prophets and preaches himself on every page? How how is Paul now saying this gospel of Jesus was never before known? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that the gospel is grace, not works, and that was never known in the Old Testament. No, it was. He's not saying that that Messiah coming and suffering for the people was unknown in the Old Testament. No, it was there in Isaiah and many other places. He's not even saying that Gentiles being included is entirely new. That was all through the Old Testament too. What he's saying is acknowledging that if you read the Old Covenant and you, you have eyes to see, but you have not yet heard of the Apostle Paul and his preaching, here's what you would be able to conclude. God will send a savior. He will die for our sins and rise again. 
He is the forgiveness of our sins, and there is no redemption except in him. And Gentiles even get a sampling of this kingdom salvation. You could say that, wow, Isaiah and Daniel and Isaiah, they tell us that there's going to be some Gentiles who come in behind the Jews and even get a taste of this gospel of grace. That's what you could have imagined and gotten from the Old Testament. But what was not told was what verse 7 says. The Gentiles are not coming in behind the Jews. They are right at the front of the line, getting through into the exclusive club at the same time, with the same means, through the same access as the Jews. Verse 6, sorry, uh, verse, yeah, verse 6 here, I said 7, but 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles, right, he doesn't say that the Gentiles are heirs after the Jews, that they are co-heirs, that they are fellow heirs, equal rights to the blessings of God. That is mind-blowing and new. The fact that they are members of the same body. The fact that God's not working with two different types of or bodies, and he doesn't got the Jews, and there's even a second body called the Gentiles that gets himself. There is no distinction. There's not even a such thing as Jew and Gentile. There's just people who have faith in Christ. That's it. That is new. Or the fact that they are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. That is new to them. The fact that they would be equal partakers was un- <coughs> that they would be co-heirs, co-body members, co-inheritors, that was entirely fresh and amazing. Now, I've got a couple of practical applications. We didn't go line by line here. We'll go back into uh, chapter 2, look at verse 20. We've got a couple of practical applications as we start closing out now. If we get this, if we, if we seek to understand the fact and reality that the church of God is his new covenant, eternal temple now, then here are some practical applications that will come through to us. Number one, the New Testament is our foundation. The New Testament is our foundation. Look at verse 20, the end of verse 19 and 20. The household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We use this language in church of being an apostolic ministry or an apostolic church. And right now, present day, the only true churches in the world are apostolic churches. Here's what I'm not saying. That to be a true church, you have to belong to the denomination called apostolic churches. (laughs) I'm not saying that you have to belong to the new apostolic reformation who believe that as long as you have an apostle, then you're a true church. Not true, not true. By apostolic, we mean agreeing with and standing on the theological shoulders of the apostles and prophets. Do you see the difference? That the the reason Jesus gave apostles, we'll see this in chapter 4, the reason he gave apostles, the reason he gave prophets was not to be an ongoing ministry, was not even to be be this, this office that would stay with the church forever or that the people would live forever. No, no, heaven forbid. The reason God gave apostles and prophets was so they would produce scriptures with the teaching that would then be the deposit once for all time for the historical church. So, so, so to say that you're apostolic, say that you're New Testament, to have the foundation of the apostles is nothing more than to say that you are defined by and, or, and, and, and you take your authority from the writing of the apostles. That is what is important. And what is the writing of the apostles? 
the New Testament, which interpret for us the Old Testament and close out the scriptures of God given to humanity. The New Testament is our foundation. That is to say that the only true local churches, or if we use temple language, the only true temples of God in this world are churches who can say truly that their teaching conforms to the teaching of the New Testament and conforms to the apostles' teaching that is preserved for us in it. That is Jesus' te- uh, sorry, the apostles' teaching on Christ and his divinity, his atonement and his salvation, the gospel and its preaching, even things like sexual ethics and morality around marriage and sexuality and, and our use of the sacraments and, and, and all of these other things that come to form the important bedrock of the teaching of the New Testament. They are the foundation that if you've got a wall or a house or if you're, you're a new uppity smart uh, uh, preacher who, who wants to add an extension onto the house and it extends beyond the foundation, God's going to cut it off. You're not a true temple. The New Testament scriptures define what is a true New Testament church. Just calling yourself a church is not enough to be, in God's eyes, the place where the Spirit dwells. Christ here, we're told, in verse uh, 21, is the, sorry, in verse 20, is the cornerstone. But look at verse 21 says, in whom the whole structure is being joined together and growing into a temple of the Lord. The, this is architectural uh, stonemason building language. What, what they would do is they, they have, yes, of course, many stones or, or a few stones that make up this huge monolithic sort of a, a foundation. But, but at the base of the two main weight-bearing walls, there would be the most important stone, the pure stone, which is the corner stone. Called so because it's, it's in the corner of the foundation. It's where the most weight is bared, but also architecturally and geometrically, its, its dimensions inform the structure of the rest of the building. If you've got a, a cornerstone that's been dodgily cut and you're, you're a couple of degrees off on one of the edges, that whole wall being conformed to it will be out of shot. It'll be off balance. If, if the top of the cornerstone is just a little bit, little bit angled and you're going to have the edifice entirely on a lean, it will not be earthquake safe. Here's the imagery that Paul is giving to us. The church and every brick in the church needs to be conformed to Jesus Christ or we will be unsteady and not grow up healthy into the holy temple of God. And, and, and we can go even simpler. How, do you, how are you conformed to Christ? That is the exact same thing as being conformed to the teaching of the apostles and prophets in the New Testament. That is why we come back to the main point, practical application. If we are the temple, then the New Testament is our theological authoritative foundation. Secondly, practical application number two, there is no greater honor than to serve Jesus in the local church. I want you to imagine that the, the Gentiles, they've sort of, maybe you've done this like every young guy loves to do this. Uh, maybe you did or didn't when you were a kid, but, but imagine you, you're taken to an Air Force museum and, and you've been shown around and you're looking at the big B-52 bombers and you're checking out the old stealth planes and the jet fighters and all that stuff. And you're going down the, the corridor of the Hall of Fame and the great battles and the dogfights in the Philippines and all these amazing things that the, the Air Force has been a part of. And then you get to the end of it and, 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 and you go from being a tourist, they grab you by the collar, throw you into the change room and get you out in uniform and throw you in a plane. 
Now you're not just tourists. Now you are people expected and responsible to fight in the actual Air Force. Now, that's the effect that verse 22 had on the Gentiles. Look at verse 22 in chapter 2. He's talking about the, the wonderful temple, the amazing thing. And, and Gentiles have touristed to, to, uh, to Jerusalem before. They've seen the temple and they get this mental imagery that Paul's doing is, yeah, yeah, that's what the church is like. Look at that amazing edifice. But they go from tourists to, in fact, being bricks in the wall. Verse 22, the you here is to the Gentiles. In him, you also are being built together. Stop just looking. You're not just now looking at the Jewish temple. You're now brought into this thing. This is your fight. This is your home. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. They've been zipped into this thing so that they now are, in fact, responsible. There's, there's, two, there's two big temples that I think would have been at the back of Paul's mind right now. As Paul's writing to Ephesus... In Ephesus, which is what started one of the big riots in Acts chapter 19, is the great temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana, one of the wonders of the ancient world, an amazingly built structure. There's this amazing temple in Ephesus, and there's the other one we've been talking quite a bit about tonight, the temple back in Jerusalem. Now, now, one was built by, both of them were built by glorious uh, kings of old and had amazing structures, but the problem, the one to Artemis and the old covenant temple to, to Yahweh, the problem with both of them is that neither of them, for all their beauty, majesty, neither of them housed the true living God. At this point that Paul writes, both of them are just empty stone structures. However, in the church is the glory of God put on display. There is no greater honor than to serve in this temple. We've been zipped into this. This is now our, we've got our, our, our uniform on. We are in this warfare. This temple is ours. We, we belong to it and it belongs to us. There is no greater honor than to serve this place where the glory of God is put on display. Ephesians 3 verse 10 says, Through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Where is God displaying his wisdom, his architectural genius, if you will? It's in the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3, verse 21. Where is the glory of God? Ephesians 3, 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever unending, the people of God said, amen. amen. That's where God has now invested his holiness and his glory. Where would a Jewish boy dream of spending the summer holidays, right? The temple, Jerusalem, just to go and look on its walls and be there and camp out and do a, do a nerdy little study group like all oh, you weird, like the horse camps that the girls do or the, the scouts, like the Jewish scouts was going to the temple and being there. Where would, the, where would the, the, the Gentile Ephesian love to spend their weekends in the temple of Artemis? Where would, where would a, 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 an Israelite love to be able to give himself in employment and live and breathe and serve? He would love to serve in the temple of God. But he was kept from it. Only Levites were permitted to do that. And where, where should any Christian, where should every Christian be honored to spend our lives, our energy, our money, and our gifts? 
in the temple of our Savior, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That is, working in the church for her purpose, which is marching forward on the Great Commission, winning souls and preaching the gospel. That's what every Christian should love to do if we really understand this is the temple of the living God. And thirdly, we can imagine, we, you cannot imagine, if all of this is true, we simply cannot imagine the privileges that are ours because of the gospel. Paul uses language here that if he had not been an apostle receiving a revelation from Jesus to write this, it would have been blasphemous. That's why they killed Stephen, the very first martyr. He, he spoke of there being a greater temple and this temple coming down and Jesus being more glorious and, and they killed him for it. This is what got Peter, Paul arrested. This is what got Jesus in so much trouble. His disrespect for the veneration of the temple. All the, you can, if it wasn't true, it would be jaw-droppingly blasphemous and worthy of death. You don't get to change God's living place. You don't get to choose where he's going to get his glory, but he does. And he did. And he transferred his temple-ness, his, his dwelling with his people in a locale. He moved it from the Old Testament temple to the most holy place now of the church. Can, do you know how, how rare it was for somebody to be able to have access to God, mediated though it was in the Old Testament, in the most holy place? That most holy place, it was literally one in a million opportunity. The, the nation was more than, more than millions of people. And in this whole, 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 whole nation of millions of people, only one man from one family, from one clan, was allowed to go into the most holy place. And even then, it was once a year, and even then, he was blinded by the smoke. He had to take blood with him. The most holy place was only entered by the high priest. But, but here's verse chapter 2, verse 18, where Paul says, every single one of us, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, every single one of us, Jew and Gentile, old and young, sinful or more sanctified, every one of us has access to the Father by the Spirit. This is, this is we, we can't stretch our minds enough. It, if, if it's not hard for us to get this, then we just don't get the reality that Paul is, is, is describing deep enough. It, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but, but man, we, we do not simply imagine, we cannot imagine the true glory and majesty of the privileges of the gospel that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we had a thousand tongues to sing and a thousand hours to preach and to listen, we would never scratch the surface of the glory of the privileges of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ for those who believe. Look at the end of verse 6 in chapter 3 as we close out. <clears throat> what is the one thing that you must go through in order to be a co-member, co-heir? co-inheritor of the promises. What's the one thing that Paul, Paul uh, uh, puts on the end of this sentence? To be fellow heirs, the Gentiles and the Jews. To be a member of the same body. To be partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Do you know what promises are rich and filled to the brim in Christ Jesus? Forgiveness of sins, no matter what you've done. Adoption to the family of God, no matter where you've been. An eternal love, an eternal life, a spirit within you and a promise to preserve you. These amazing promises in Christ Jesus. Do you know how you access them? You have to go through Jesus Christ, through the gospel. 
That's the only way. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you, you gain all of the promises in the gospel. Simply come to Jesus through the gospel. What is the gospel? It is that though you deserve to die, Jesus died instead. Though God demands you to be perfect, you failed, Jesus was perfect instead. Though you were condemned to be forever trapped under the bondage and destruction of death, Jesus took death in your place and was buried instead. And though you could not overpower sin, Satan, or the law, or or death itself, Jesus overcame it instead. And in his triumphant resurrection, and in his reigning from heaven, he now beckons all of us come. Come to God. Come to eternal life. Come and receive forgiveness through the gospel. Faith alone. Believe it. Rest in it if you never have before. Let's pray. Words fail us, God. Words utterly fail us when it comes to try and try and understand and stretch our minds and wrap it around the glory of what you have done through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this imagery, this uh, this word picture that he's given to us tonight to consider what our salvation is. And that that is this inclusive, bringing everybody who believes together to this building, this temple, the dwelling place of God in the world, where, where you show off your wisdom, where you show off your glory forever and ever. We thank you, God. We are we are humbled. We, we thank you that you ironed out those, those disagreements and those misunderstandings in the early century through the, the writings of the apostles and prophets so that we would now have this deposit given to us which defines us as a church, which we bend down our lives to and, and submit to this wonderful gift of the New Testament which explains the Old Covenant and which, which applies all of Scripture to us. Father God, we thank you for your apostles and prophets, uh, for your uh, apostles and prophets, for those who spoke your word by your spirit. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our cornerstone. We thank you that on him we are built and that in him we receive life. We thank you that by faith in his name we are forgiven of our sins and made your children in your household. We pray, Lord God, we ask, firstly, that we would, as Paul will say in Ephesians 4, we would walk in a manner worthy of this calling. That though we can never be worthy so as to earn it, we can live in a way that shows off the worth of it. Father God, would you enable us to be not exclusive against others, but inclusive of all, inviting them to the Lord Jesus Christ? We pray that you would make us to, to try and pray and, and, and submit ourselves to understanding more of your gospel as time goes on, that we might be conformed to Christ and therefore more fit, more holy to be your temple. Father God, I pray that you would, uh, uh, in our midst, though we're fallen, though we're unworthy, yet you have chosen to be dwelling in our midst. And I pray that that, that dwelling, that presence, that, that inhabiting us, Lord God, that you would, you would change us. You would make us more and more holy, turn us against the sins of our flesh, turn us against the, the sins of the world and make us a holy, distinct people on a mission to save all of those who you have chosen from eternity. Father God, we praise you. We ask only that you would continue to be gracious and continue to show your mercy and glory through the Lord Jesus Christ in our church. We thank you and pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen.
We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.